Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're uh, doing a special episode, which they're all special to me, <laughs> but to Tony especially. Uh, we are uh, have have gone through the past uh, about year or so, uh, walking through the book, uh, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And uh, we've we've done two episodes per chapter on the uh, for most of it. Some of them we had to do three. Some that we thought we weren't going to have much to talk about, we ended up doing three. And those that we thought, oh, this is a big chapter, we condensed into to one or two. So uh, we, we've, we've had a joy of, of going through this book. Um, and so we decided to bring back our very first guest, all the way back from episode 13, Scott Christensen, who is uh, joining us uh, today. And he's the associate pas- pastor at Kernsville, uh, Kernville Bible Church and author of what about free will, which has more highlighting than I probably want to care to admit in this. <laughs> and then, of course, our, our book uh, that we've uh, gone over the past is uh, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And so uh, we decided to uh, bring back our first guest and our first returning guest, Pastor Scott Christensen. Pastor Christensen, welcome to the show again. Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. We appreciate it. I, I, I did. I did more good highlighting in this book than than drawing question marks in this and and having to have Tony explain explain it to me. But uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, 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 I um, let's see. Tomorrow uh, in the show, I, I, I did a little um, uh, review and I said how much I appreciate this book because I've been trying to. Uh, in, in my in my own walk, uh, trying to apply my theology uh, proper. So I'm, I've been trying to apply not just the facts of who God is and and uh, you know God is love and, and and all all these all these ideas and and have it more practically applied. And uh, what I've enjoyed about your book is the challenge to do that in a good way. In that uh, uh, I I've, I think I've I've done interviews based on chapters of your book with people who are writing about God's story in the, the, uh, the, the, the meta narrative. And, uh, uh, I think one of the best, uh, chapters of the incarnation I've, I've read has been in your book. And, uh, uh, one of the, uh, good overviews of, 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 um, the history of philosophy chapter two. I mean, you, you did this book really, really well. And so, uh, we wanted to have you on and just say, we appreciated your story and, and, and how you set it up. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a daunting task <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to cover all the different subject material that I did in the book and, uh, felt very inadequate to the tasks, but, but, uh, hopefully it's helpful to people that have, have read it. Yeah. Uh, so we, we kind of, I first wanted to say that, uh, you've laid out this book very poorly because, uh, you gave us the answer right off the start. I was saying you, you have to bury it in the middle of the book. Uh, and you, force you, people to read. Yeah. yeah. Force people yeah. to read it. You can't, you can't give them the answer in the first, first chapter and then build up from there. Uh, so can, can you explain, um, uh, for, for, for those who, who, um, who haven't been following our, our, our series, what is a theodicy? And then what is, uh, your idea from, uh, the uh, best uh, scriptural and theological and uh, philosophical point is uh, what you call the greater uh, glory theodicy. Yeah. A, a theodicy is, is really a way of trying to explain uh, why a good and uh, an all good and all powerful God 
would permit evil to exist in the world. And uh, so, so the idea is how do, how do we defend God against the charge that he is responsible for evil or even the charge that God doesn't even exist because there's evil in the world and presumably a good and powerful God would never permit evil to exist in the world. And so a, a theodicy is an attempt to either defend God against the charge that he is evil or against the charge that he doesn't exist uh, because of evil, or uh, a theodicy could be something more robust in explaining why God, in fact, does uh, either permit or ordain evil in the world. So you really have two different categories in historically in theological and philosophical circles, a defense um, when you're dealing with what's called the problem of evil. And this is what this book deals with um, is more a more modest approach of just simply defending God against charges that either doesn't exist or that, that he does exist. He does allow evil, but somehow he is not culpable for evil. Uh, so it's fairly modest apologetic type of defense of, of God. Uh, whereas a theodicy is really technically more of a, of a positive explanation. Yes, we know that God is not culpable for evil. He does exist. Yeah, why has he permitted evil, or why has he ordained it to be part of his his uh, his plan for history? And so, so a, technically, a theodicy is a much more robust kind of response to the problem of evil, uh, seeking to give a, 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 a true explanation for why there is evil in the world. And uh, but just to back up a little bit, the word theodicy itself is a term that basically combines the Greek word for God, which is theos, and the Greek word for justify, which is dike. So you combine those two words together, and the transliterated term is theodicy. And um, I, I forget offhand who, who coined that term, uh, but it was back in the 1600s, I think, uh, 1700s. But anyway, um, yeah, that's a theodicy. So... Uh... So, um, and you kind of, uh, I mean, you deal with this a lot in your book. So what you've just outlined there is kind of two separate, different approaches to how we try to deal with the issue of, uh, you know, evil, God and evil. And uh, the defense approach, which, as you mentioned, is kind of a... Um, um, uh, just a soft way, apparently, uh, or, you know, to deal right. with it has to do with usually when we think about that, we're, we're thinking about the free will defense. And yes. you kind of take issue with that particular approach in your book. So could you kind of explain for us, you know, how you capture the free will defense and maybe a couple of issues that you that you have with that particular. And I know we're kind of jumping off really quickly here. <laughs> into some. <laughs> yeah, so the there's, there's really two basic ways that historically Christians have addressed the problem of evil, uh, either in terms of a defense or a theodicy. And the most common response is called the free will defense. And, uh, and then the other approach is generally known as the, the greater good defense. And, uh, of course, my theodicy, as you may 
guess, uh, is, is a variation of the greater good uh, theodicy or defense. And, and I call my theodicy the greater glory theodicy for reasons I can explain later. But, but anyway, the, the, the free will defense is the most common defense. Uh, and it is based on the assumption that a particular definition of free will is self-apparent or true. And, uh, and so in philosophical and theological circles, this particular brand of free will is called libertarian free will. It's not the political philosophy, uh, but it's the idea that, that nothing decisively or sufficiently can determine what choices we make. And so we are autonomous as human beings in terms of our choices. Uh, they're not determined by, they're not sufficiently determined by anything, including God himself. And so in that sense, our choices are free and uh, they're indeterministic, some people will say. Uh, but furthermore, that means that you could have always chosen differently in the same set of circumstances. So you have same set of circumstances up to the time and point of choosing, and you could equally choose A or not A in those same set of circumstances at that same point. And nothing sufficiently determines whether you would choose A or not A. And so this is what free will theists define as free will. Uh, and so what that means for what's called the free will defense is that God, um, free will theists will say that God granted human beings this ability to have this kind of free will, and God doesn't interfere with that free will uh, because it's necessary in order to maintain what they believe to be uh, moral responsibility Without free will, you, you cannot be morally responsible for your choices. They also would say that this kind of free will is necessary for loving relationships. And furthermore, it, it guards God against being the author of evil. Uh, it guards God against being morally responsible for evil. So the opposite view, of course, would be that God in his sovereignty uh, determines the whole course of history. And so the free will theist says, well, if you believe that, then that means God has to then be morally responsible for evil in the world. So the free will defense basically says if free will is true and they believe it is, and if God does not interfere with the choices of human beings, and yet this is a valuable thing to have in order to preserve moral responsibility and to preserve, for example, loving relationships, they, they would say, you know, we can't truly love God unless we are free to love God and vice versa. God must be free in his love toward us. And so there's, there's this sort of free exchange where no strings tied, you know, to our choices. And that's the way they would argue. And that's a very valuable thing. However, it comes with a great risk. Yeah, and, it almost, and so I God, mean... Yeah, not to interrupt you here, but so uh, no strings are tied, and yet it seems like, and I this I'm sure this is where you're going. It ties a rope around God, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it it makes God dependent on the choices of human beings, 
And so if God does not interfere with our choices, and he could, it's important to recognize that those who hold to this view, and typically it is connected with classical Arminianism, uh, but other free will theists would include people like open theists, if, if you're hearers uh, know what I'm, you know, what that is. And, and another brand of theology called Molinism, there's some differences between those three basic brands of free will theism. But what, what is common to all of them is that they have the same definition of free will. And, and so the idea is that if God grants human beings this kind of free will, then God is taking a risk that people will use their choices to make bad choices and so these evil choices is what generates evil in the world. And it's just part of the risk that God has to take in order to create a world where people have free will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so supposedly that, that position guards God against the charge that he would be the author of evil. And essentially God himself has no choice. If he's going to create a world where, where loving you know, valuable relationships occur. Those relationships presumably have to be based on this free will. You know, I have to, in order to really express love, I have to have the equal ability to say, you know, I don't want to love you. I'd rather hate you. Uh, And if I don't have that ability to make the choice between love or hate, then, then I'm not really free and I'm not really responsible. I'm just a robot. I'm just a programmed computer you know, and I have no free will. Mm. And, and so that's the argument. I, I think one of the, the best counter arguments, especially to that one, because I think that one's a very powerful um, argument against uh, kind of against your position. But uh, the best counter example is who God is, which is in a Trinity it, it is, is Jesus is, are, is the Holy spirit is the father. Are they, are they allowed not to love each other in, in, in the triune nature? And so, if, if they don't have so, the so-called freedom to, to hate each other, is that true love? Well, we would say that in the existence of, of, uh, the, the, of God before creation, uh, he, he was in perfect unity. He, uh, one of the, the positive qualities of uh, Trinity as opposed to uh, strict monotheism like uh, Islam is that God kind of has to learn love in, in that capacity. And, and here, uh, by having a, a, a triune nature with three persons, uh, th- there is no learning love. He is loving towards the the, the other members of the Trinity, and so d- d- uh, does God have the ability to not love in in that uh, in that uh, uh, relationship? And I think that's uh, one of the powerful uh, counterexamples uh, to your book on that uh, on that point. Yeah, exactly. God God Himself does not have this kind of freedom. And so this sort of freedom is necessary for loving relationships. Well, God himself doesn't have it because it's not even possible for God to express hate, right? That would be, that would be, uh, you know, that would be the capacity for sin existing within God. And there is no capacity for sin within God. And, and so, um, you know, the love that exists among the members of the Trinity, uh, there can be no other possibility, uh, there is no possibility of hatred among members of the Trinity. There is only the possibility of perfect, you know, unhindered love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so, um, so God doesn't have this kind of free will. And if God doesn't have that kind of free will, and it's not necessary 
for God to be morally responsible in his relationships with each other or with us, then why is it necessary for us to have that? Yeah. And so that, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, one of the arguments against free will. Right. And, and to say too, uh, what I appreciate about your last book and, uh, and it followed into this book, which I'm always uh, happy to see is, uh, the, the other side, uh, laid out and, uh, laid out using kind of the, their definitions, their terms, uh, but then interacting with it in, in a, a, a positive light. In fact, uh, m- many of the, um, the, the, the five uh, theodicies that, that you list, I'm sorry, the, the, the six here, um, uh, you talk about positives that they have and, and uh, you, you kind of uh, incorporate into, into your, um, into your th- um, um, answer for the theodicy. Yeah, I, I thought that was, uh, well, that was one of the things that we uh, observed really uh, quickly in the book. It seemed like you were really fair with, with the other side in terms of making sure that you clearly explain where they were coming from, why they held the, the, the positions that they held. And so that, yeah, that was, and so you could really understand where the folks who you definitely disagree with but, you know, where their good points were and, and that sort of thing. So that we, we really appreciated that when we were going through this book. That was really helpful. Yeah, yeah rare, rarely in these debates do you find someone embracing something so painfully false <laughs> that that it's just, you know, that there's nothing of value to learn from that. I think there's so many valuable points that free will theists make. Uh, and, and it's important to understand where some of those strong points are. Um, you know, there, you know, there is a sense in which we have to have some concept of freedom of will, uh, because we recognize that we make decisions willfully, right? Whether they be sinful decisions or whether they be godly decisions, depending on on the situation and the person uh, in terms of whether or not they're regenerate or unregenerate as, 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 you know, as Christians or non-Christians and what, what stands behind those choices, you know, for example, uh, free will theists will accuse Calvinists, um, you know, of a brand of, of choosing of free will, if you want to call it that, that involves coercion. Well, that'd be a great, that'd be a serious charge if that were true. And, uh, you know, if, if God determining our choices was a matter of coercion, I think the free will theists would be correct in saying that our freedom of choice and our moral responsibility has been rendered mute uh, if, if coercion were involved. Uh, we, we know from, from experience that if somebody is, forced to do something against their will with a gun pointed to their head, you know, to do something evil, you know, that they're not morally responsible for that. Uh, and so part of the charge of, of free will theists towards Calvinists is that your brand of free will involves coercion, you know, because you could do no other. Right. And so they assume that means coercion. The pro- so the, the, the task of the Calvinists is to say, no, that's not coercion. So it's important to listen to both sides of the arguments because they do make good points, but do they misrepresent each other? And so, you know, you always have to make, do your best effort to represent the opposition the way that they themselves would argue and then, and then look for the, the weaknesses in their arguments. Yeah, yeah so, so Patrick's has already pointed out 
as you, and I think you do it in your book with this issue of uh, God and love and in the Trinity. Is there any what, what is there a, what do you think? Is there any other um, arguments against this free will defense that you think are really you know causes it not to to work? I guess for a, for a good the, uh, theodicy. Well, yeah, there's there's a number of, of reasons why I think the libertarian brand of free will is um, is not coherent um, from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, I believe it's not coherent because the Bible makes it very clear that God is uh, sovereign overall of history and uh, that he has determined everything that takes place in the course of history. And I seek through several chapters to demonstrate that. And, and I believe that he is sovereign over both good and evil and that evil in fact serves God's purposes and that if something evil were to occur in a world that God might plan or ordain that did not serve some purpose that God had, some good or greater purpose, uh, then if that evil had not occurred, then he certainly would not have ordained it to happen. And we know of cases in which God has said, you know, certain amount of evil uh, will be allowed in his his plan. And then beyond that, no, a good example of that would be the great flood in, 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 in Genesis, you know, the, the, the world had become so evil that God had determined that this is not going to continue this way. And so he designed, you know, Noah and the flood to wipe out the world and to start over. And we have many examples of that kind of thing. Nonetheless, the point is, is that the Bible is very clear about God's sovereignty over both good and evil. What the Bible is less clear about is some fine-tuned definition of free will. And so I, I think it's important to not overstate the case. Uh, and, and, and I bring this out in my previous book, What About Free Will? That the Bible is, does not give us some clear definition of free will. Uh, but it certainly doesn't embrace the libertarian view of free will. I believe it's far more supportive of what is called the compatibilist view of free will, that our free choices are compatible with God's meticulous sovereignty. And uh, so I think that would be an argument against free will and probably the most powerful argument in my mind. Another very powerful argument against free will is the doctrine of foreknowledge. You know, both Arminians and Calvinists agree that God knows every future event uh, in history exhaustively. And therefore, it's not possible for something that God does not foreknow to happen contrary to what he already knows. And yet, that's part of the definition of free will from Arminians and other free will theists is that, you, you know, at the moment of choosing, you could always go in opposite directions. And if that's the case, you could never know beforehand what those choices might be. Right. There goes the prophecy. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem for, for Arminians and other free will theists. And they have turned themselves, I believe they've turned themselves in all kinds of knots and circles trying to answer that question and, and have done so in a very unsatisfactory way. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, that God, knows that you're going to wake up 
tomorrow morning and drink, you know, a cup of Folgers coffee at 9.03 a.m., is it possible for you at 9.03 a.m. to fool God and drink a glass of lemonade instead? Um, <laughs> if that's the case, then you have, you have eviscerated God's omniscience. And that is one of the attributes of God that we cannot, um, we cannot deny. Mm. And so, yeah, the problem of foreknowledge is a very big problem. I think on on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's it still doesn't uh, let the the Molinist or the 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 uh, the, um, the provisionist uh, kind of get away from that that nomenclature of author of evil because God still actualizes uh, a universe in which uh, you know, and it's always it's always uh, the the rape of a child or it's always something very very strong uh, emotional that uh, that the, they put forward. Um, it, it it's always actualized in a world where X evil happens. And so God is, is, uh, authoring a world in which those things he, he knows to happen. So it, it, it almost, uh, it, it maybe takes a step backwards and, 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 and looks at the point of, uh, creation. Uh, but, uh, from, from there, uh, you know, God can't do otherwise because then he would be interfering. And so it's, yeah. it seems to be a, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the point against Calvinism, uh, it, it seems to s- still uh, work against them for their point of view too. Yeah, you can't escape. You can't escape these problems. Uh, you know, for 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 example, for the open theists, you know, the open theists I think has the most consistent view of free will, because basically they deny that God has any foreknowledge of future events. Now, God can know with great accuracy what future events might be but he can't know with absolute certainty what those events might be. Mm-hmm. Um, they would say that God has exhaustive pre-knowledge, you know, of everything in the past up to the present, and he can use that knowledge to predict the future. And he's really good at predicting the future. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's how they treat prophecy. Um, but, but he doesn't know exhaustively what the future holds. He can't know with any certainty uh, you know, with 100% absolute certainty, what any future event holds. Nonetheless, you know, let's, let's consider the case of a serial rapist or a serial murder. You know, the open theist God may not know that this guy's going to commit murder, but after the second or third murder, you know, he knows what this guy's probably going to do. Why doesn't he stop him at that point? Mm-hmm. You know, God does, you know, the open theist agrees that God has the sovereign power to intervene. Now, of course, the same is true of the Arminian. If the Arminian knows, you know, that the Arminian God knows that this serial rapist is going to continue to rape these, you know, 30 odd women or whatever, why doesn't he stop, intervene and stop? So they end up with the same type of problems that they accuse the Calvinists of having because of the foreknowledge issue. And, um, and the Molinist just ties himself in circles with the same, same thing. So the, the bottom line is, is that you have to have a much more robust understanding of God's relationship to evil than any of those viewpoints provide us. And, and even many Calvinists shy away from the kind of theodicy that I present in, in my book, because it seems absolutely audacious to say that God has some kind of greater good um, that would come out of evil. And so many Calvinists are very reluctant to go down that path. 
but the fact is, is that that's the only other viable position that you would have to hold to if you reject these other positions. Yeah. So, so just before we get to your, uh, specifics of your position. Let's talk about one other probably popular uh, position. Leibniz has a theodicy that sounds similar to the type of thing that you're doing, although as you point out in the book, it's it's very different, right? So could you, you know, he has a, a best of all possible worlds type of thing, and it's a theodicy to help, you know, explain or defend what God is doing. Could, so could you just share that with us a bit? And then maybe that'll lead us into, as you talk about how that's different than your position, that'll lead us into more specifics of what your position is. Yeah, I, I'm very favorable to Leibniz's uh, position, but he he fails to answer some important questions uh, about his position. So basically Leibniz's position, he was a, uh, a philosopher in the, in the 1700s, I think, early 1700s, uh, that put forth this theodicy called the best of all possible worlds. And the idea is that God is a perfect being. And this, this comes from classical theism, which uh, most Orthodox Christians would adhere to, um, not in the, in the fullest sense. Arminians don't always embrace everything that classical theism teaches. Uh, nonetheless, Calvinists do. And, uh, and so the idea is that a perfect God would only create a world that is perfect, uh, and so that presents obviously a problem at face value because why would anyone think that evil in a world is a perfect world? So Leibniz says, well, it's because God has some greater good. So really the best of all possible worlds is a version of what is called the greater good type of theodicy or defense. And, and there's a number that fall within that category. And I I'm try to demonstrate that in the book. But anyway, uh, so he would say that God must have some good purpose in evil. The problem is, is that Leibniz never tells us what that might be or what those greater goods might actually be, just that we have to agree that they would be. Furthermore, we have to agree that God would make a world that is perfect, and there is no better world than the one that he created. Uh the problem with that is that how can we know for sure that this is the best possible world that God could have created? Um, I think the best that we can say, and this is what I attempt to say in my book, is that I think we could say that there is no greater world that God could have made, but there could have been equally other worlds that are not worse than the one that he has created. And I think that has less philosophical problems, um, you know, and again, that's, you know, we're speculating based on inferences that we make from the character of God and from scripture. So I believe that the best of all possible worlds, the odyssey that Leibniz developed does have some great value to it. It's just that he doesn't answer a lot of those questions, and, and I think he makes a mistake of saying that this is the only possible world God could have created um, that is the best world. I, I think it's presumptuous for us to say that God was locked into only making this type of world. 
uh, with the exact, you know, balance of good and evil and everything that happens to me, that's, that's restricting God too much. Nonetheless, I do argue in my book that there is no greater world than the one God has created in which certain things occur. And namely those things have to do with the incarnation, the death and resurrection, the ascension, the second coming and the eternal state that is all centered around Jesus Christ. And so there is no greater world that we can conceive of in which there would be no incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and final uh, victorious establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom than in such the world that God has created. And so any, any good, supremely good world that God could have conceived of would have to include the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom forever. And that's part of my argument in, right. in the book. In fact, that gets us directly then to your greater glory uh, theodicy. Yeah. Right, because that's what gets that's what gives God the greatest glory. Yeah, those, I, I, those elements. I, I keep reading the Bible, and I, I I like I like seeing myself in there. So you know, uh, <laughs> D- David comes in, he slays Goliath. I, I really like that story, and then all of a sudden God comes in and has to uh, eschew him of all the evil that he's done. He breaks all ten commandments. I I, I like the Apostle Peter. Uh, you, you know, he seems really gung ho. And then he comes uh, to, to, you know, lop off an ear. That, that's, that's really good. I, I see myself in that a lot. And then lo and behold, God comes in and interjects himself. And it seems to be that God keeps putting himself in the forefront of Scripture. And I, I, as a person that looks at pictures for only me, I don't appreciate that. And so is there something towards your theodicy that, that uh, might speak uh, uh, in favor of, uh, of God at the center of the story? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Any theodicy that does not place God, and, and I, I argue any theodicy that does not place God's glory supremely at the center, uh, there's something wrong with that theodicy. And I think that's one of the major, if you want to back up and look at all of the ways that, that Christians have addressed a problem of evil, I, I think you can hone them down to those that are far more man-centered and those that are more God-centered. And unfortunately, I believe that the free will theism tends to be more man-centered and has has a, a greater emphasis upon man and his choices and his autonomy, supposed autonomy, and that God is subservient to the concerns of the human you know, person. Uh, and, and that God's whole design for creation was for the happiness of man. And really that's, that's at the heart of free will theism is that God's greatest, this is why they emphasize God's love as his greatest attribute, his love, not toward members of the Trinity, but his love for humans. And so the assumption is, is if God really loves human beings and he wants their happiness and so the happiness of the human is at the center of God's concerns. And, and so, but that in itself is a problem because if God was so concerned about the happiness of humans, then why did he create conditions on the earth in which sin would, would come about? 
Uh, so again, it's just, you get into so many problems when you get to a man centered kind of theology. And, and so uh, a theology that is God centered means that everything is going to center on God's glory and what brings him the most glory. And, and you bury the lead on page six and seven of this. Again, I, uh, I've got my little marker on here, and I, I, it's a different color. And I'm like, oh, it's so early in the book that, that you give us. Uh, so it's, uh, it, was, it was interesting. But then you, you, um, you go, and I, I think uh, some of the really interesting chapters, and I was just wondering if you can kind of lay out what your thinking process was with, with, with laying out this book, because you deal with stuff that I would not expect to find in a Reformed, Calvinist uh, uh, book, you talk about uh, God is the storyteller and the meta narrative. It, it was uh, kind of a, 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 a if, if people know Jordan Peterson, it was kind of uh, nice to, to, to see uh, um, a Christian <laughs> version of that, not to talk poorly against Jordan Peterson. Uh, but then uh, again, you, you go in uh, and, and rightly so you focus on the character and nature of God. We, we talked about uh, God is loving, but uh, again, that, that incarnation uh, chapter and, and, and just how uh, God focused and loving the incarnation is. Um, I, I think uh, I, I, I said that uh, in, in Goodreads, you can kind of make shelves for things. And I like, I like doing uh, books that I can grab off the shelf and say, okay, I want to learn about uh, things like the theodicy or, or, or incarnation. And I was like, I'm, I went to my Goodreads shelf and I marked this in the incarnation because I thought uh, it, you, do, you do a great service with, with the idea in a very, um, again, uh, uh, useful application sense of, of, of the incarnation. And so, um, can you talk about, uh, kind of what, what led you from, from, from the theodicy into kind of the meta narrative and, and focusing on, on God's character throughout this and the storytelling aspect. Yeah. It was really, really excellent. I, I, I'm going to sing your praises about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in order to introduce, um, what I call the greater glory theodicy, you know, I, I decided it was important to look at the broad narrative of scripture, but how that narrative seems to reflect the way that human beings throughout history, uh, for the most part, have told stories. And so that's why I begin my actual introduction of my theodicy with a chapter on storytelling and that there seems to be a universal pattern to how good stories are told and that every good story usually has some kind of crisis. In fact, it's not a really good story at all unless there's, unless there is some crisis that is introduced that goes against the way things ought to be. Right. So we, as human beings, we have this conception of a, of a kind of utopia, if you will, or the way things ought to be, um, you know, a garden of Eden kind of reality. And then, and then some kind of crisis that destroys that, that picture of serenity, that, that picture of beauty and peace and, and, and coherence and all of that. And it shatters that, that picture of way, the way things should be, uh, the way things that we want them to be as humans. And it shatters that reality 
And then in the course of the story, some hero intervenes and restores and defeats the crisis, defeats the villain, whoever it is that comes in and destroys things or whatever, and then restores things back to the way they're supposed to be. And so that what you have in storytelling is this sort of U-shape where you have an assumption or, or the beginning of the story uh, shows how things should be. And then suddenly this crisis intervenes and then the rest of the story is how that crisis gets resolved in order to restore things back to the way they should be. The classic example of this is the Lord of the Rings, right? So you we may have mentioned the, that a few times in the show. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the Lord of the Rings story, what Tolkien did, you know, if, for those who've read the books or, or my son's reading the books right now, uh, but, uh, you know, or if you've seen the movies, you know, the, the trilogy, you know, it starts out in the Shire, right? And it's this, this kind of perfect, oh, this is the way life should be. People are happy. They're enjoying each other. They're, there's this vital community. And then suddenly these dark things start entering into the story. And then we learn about this ring uh, that, that we discover has this great power, but yet it's evil. And anyone who gets a hold of this ring is destroyed by it. And so, so you know, we need someone to get a hold of this ring that can handle the evil of it and destroy it somehow in order to restore harmony and peace back to Middle Earth. Right. And, and so it's a classic example of this U-shaped storyline in which you have a set of ideal conditions, the way things ought to be, then a crisis that undermines those ideal conditions. And then some hero or set of heroes or something in the story that that resolves that crisis and brings it back to the way things ought to be. So I, so I spent a whole chapter talking about storytelling and that virtually every good story has that even those stories that end tragically. Um, so historically in, in, in storytelling, you have comedies and tragedies. Comedies are where the stories end good tragedies are where the stories end sort of bad, but leave you wanting. But in reality, what I argue is that in tragedies where the hero fails, um, that, that it's actually produces a greater longing for the comedy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like tragedies because it leaves you sad and uh, they didn't resolve the story. <laughs> you know, but it causes you to long more for the comedy mm-hmm. because we know the comedy is the way that things ought to be. Yeah. And this resonates with every human being. Every human being loves these types of stories. Now, that has nothing to do with the morals and the ethics and the worldview that is interjected into these stories. As I point out in in that chapter, you know, you can have a whacked, unbelieving worldview and yet create conditions, you know, where you still have good and evil, however you define it, and, and and a crisis you know, and however your worldview defines those things, the pattern is still the same. Uh, and so I asked the question, where does this pattern come from? Well, I believe God hardwired it into our humanity. And that because we're fallen creatures, we know instinctively something ain't right about this world, you know, and there's something not right about us. 
you know, we are fallen creatures. We are subject to sin and evil and misery and, and, and just conditions in this world that just don't seem right. And so, you know, we live in a fallen world and I believe God hardwired us for, for experiencing a restoration to the way things ought to be. And so what I say is that every story really is a story about redemption. Um, and, and that really that just mirrors this, the, the meta narrative of scripture of creation, fall and redemption that you have this sort of U shaped pattern and the whole unfolding of the scriptural narrative where you start out with creation, then immediately within the first few pages, the crisis is introduced, you know, the to temptation of Adam and Eve and the serpent entering the garden and boom, you start almost start off with the crisis, you know, just right on the tails of, you know, the seventh day when God declared everything to be very good. Yeah. Uh, and so immediately we're thrust right into the crisis of the whole, the whole crisis of history on page two of the Bible. You know? <laughs> and, and so the rest of the Bible is really God's plan to restore Eden, to bring paradise back front and center. So why did he do that? You know, why didn't he just create the storyline flat? Why didn't he create conditions in the garden so that Adam and Eve uh, never had the possibility of sinning that why didn't he just prevent the serpent from ever slithering into the garden in the first place? Uh, no, it seems to me that God planned all of that because why? Because it gave him the opportunity to magnify his glory in a way that he otherwise could not, unless he created, unless he freely created conditions by which this crisis entered the world and he would send forth his son through the incarnation, through the death and resurrection to defeat evil, to redeem a people for himself and to bring resolution to all of the evil and ultimately to restore creation itself to its rightful place. And that's the whole storyline of the Bible. Amen. And to me, that is the theodicy of the Bible. Yeah. Amen. And yeah. You, 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 and you, one of the things that I, I, I've been saying after reading your book is there's a reason that we have the Bible. But, you know, why is it not just a series of rules of do, do's and do nots? There are stories involved in it. And uh, I was recently a guest host on uh, the Anarchist uh, Bible study where we went over uh, uh, in the book of Judges, um, uh, Gideon. And Gideon's story has that that fall off <laughs> almost immediately. Uh, you, you think he's going to be redeemed and at the end, uh, there's the tragedy the, you know, he, he's, he's, he's not quite the King, but he also is the King. Cause he takes the, the, the cloak. He takes the, 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 the metal. He takes, uh, the, 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 the gold. He names the son, uh, my father is the King. And so, <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, 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 the Anakin Skywalker, you know, you were supposed to be the chosen one. And, and, uh, yeah. he, yes. he does, he does point though to, uh, uh, I won't be the king, but God should be your king. And so it, it's again this this uh, this idea where you know uh, seeing Christ uh, uh, pre uh, kind of preordained in the scripture of this is the fulfillment that He's going to come come and bring about, and that's why it's so important that we we maintain the Old Testament. We're reading Job, and 
uh, I, uh, I, I read Job when we were going through it. It was uh, a very providential, not lucky, but providential. And, uh, and how God doesn't give an answer. He doesn't give an answer for uh, why the serpent, what, you know, why does Satan fall? He doesn't give us that answer. That's why stories like Paradise Lost seems so important to us because it kind of gives us the, yeah. uh, the fan fiction version of, well, what was behind the scenes of, of that? And, and, you know, you, you, you start Job in, it, it, you know, at, at the throne and you're like, whoa, th- this is something new and, and interesting. And, and, uh, and yet the focus after, after being in the mud, almost literally with Job for so many chapters and, and his friends who probably aren't the best of friends at the end, uh, <laughs> is, is God focused. And, and, uh, so I, I, uh, I thought that was a, a, a good challenging, uh, um, outlook of, of, of my own, um, kind of, uh, ideas of, yeah, I like seeing myself in this, but ultimately what is, what, what's the focus of creation? Is it me? Well, it can't be because I'm, I'm who I am. I'm just created. I'm fallen. Uh, I, yeah, I'm redeemed, but then, okay, well who redeemed me and who created me and who, uh, uh, put, put out those conditions that I came to uh, salvation for. And, and the Bible explicitly talks about, um, that salvation isn't a, a work of my own doing, uh, you know, there, there's nothing that I'm doing there. I'm not force sensitive. I'm not salvation sensitive, but that I'm, I'm uh, chosen freely by God to come for being a, uh, uh, I could have been a vessel of wrath or a vessel of, of, of glory. And, uh, uh, your, your Romans nine part, which, uh, we kept teasing because, uh, it, it, it could have been so easy to put Romans nine right up front, but, uh, but, uh, you, you laid out this, uh, kind of meta narrative and then boom, hit us with Romans nine. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the issue really stems from why did God create the world? You know, did he create it for our sake or did he create it for his sake? Um, yes, he created it for our sake, but he created it for our sake, ultimately for his sake. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that God's ultimate reason for creating a world was to bring glory to himself because he is the only one worthy of such supreme glory. And he's chosen to do that by sharing his glory with creatures that he chose to make and to magnify his glory before those creatures who were designed to then magnify his glory, to worship him and to be in awe and wonder of who this amazing God is. But how did God most magnify his glory? Well, he could have been glorified by creating a paradise in which the fall would have never taken place. He could have been glorified in that. There's no question. God will, you know, God will glorify himself and everything, but how would God supremely glorify himself? And I believe if we just back up and ask the question, how has God most supremely glorified himself? Every Christian at some point has got to come back to the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, why was, what is that? What, what was the purpose of that? Well, it's obvious that it's that the purpose for the incarnation is redemption. It is to redeem sinful human beings from this corrupt world and from their own corrupt hearts and minds, their own corrupt souls. And, and that God is most supremely magnified in the grace that he displays in saving, uh, you know, these, these rotten fallen creatures who do not deserve salvation 
who do not deserve redemption. And yet by God's grace, he redeems them anyway. And, and he does that by himself entering the story through the second person of the Trinity and, you know, condescends to our level, enters into our pain and our, uh, our misery. And then he redeems our pain, our misery, our sin through his own death, brutal death on the cross in which he experienced the wrath of God and thereby satisfies God's wrath in order to redeem these undeserving creatures and thereby magnify his glory beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And there is no world that we can conceive of whereby God's glory could be magnified more than in the story that he has already established through the Redeemer who came and, and, and defeated sin and evil and death and the curse and suffering and pain and all of that through his death and resurrection and ultimately through the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Yeah, good. And, and so um, I guess uh, th- that leads v- very well into my pastoral question. So uh, Pastor Christensen, something evil has happened to me. Why exactly did God allow it to happen? <laughs> can you, can you kind of give us a, uh, um, uh, an overview uh, maybe of, of something that we as, as Christians can point to when we have unbelievers, believers, you know, all of humanity ha- has, has this interaction of, of we've experienced something evil. Can we point to it? You know, if I, if I was going to write a pure flicks film uh, you know, I would set up all my characters, something bad would happen. And at the end, uh, you know, the, the, the car accident would would uh, uh, save the life of six people because the organs have gone gone to uh, uh, people that would go on to cure cancer. World peace would would uh, <laughs> bring about, uh, you know, the 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 the, the next uh, uh, president of the of the of the third United States uh, uh, revolution would would come into play. Uh, John Connor, you know, would save humanity from Skynet. Um <laughs> But, but, but we don't, we don't, we, we don't see, we, you know, and even in the Bible, we, we don't see unless if directly revealed, we don't see uh, that kind of uh, hidden plan of God. And so what, what can we say to uh, people that say uh, something evil, something bad happened to me today? What was God's purpose in that? Yeah. So there's a, there's a whole number of things that we could say, you know, you know, you, you, you mentioned Job earlier and in Job's experience, Job asked that very question evil had occurred in Job's life in, in an unjustified sense, right? Job was a righteous man and, and he was righteous, not by his own declaration, but by the declaration of God himself. You know, when he, when he spoke to Satan, he says, have you considered my Job a blameless man upright, you know, in all of his ways, uh, you know, and so God himself is declaring Job to be a righteous man. And yet he incites Satan to attack Job for no apparent reason other than that Satan thinks, oh yeah, I'll, I'll attack Job. And if you, and if I do, he'll curse you to your face. And God's like, no, he won't. <laughs> And, and he goes, yes, he will. You know, you can imagine, you know, if we want to, you know, turn this into a little story, you know, there's a debate between God and Satan. He goes, he goes, you can, you can attack him and he's not going to curse me. He goes, yes, he will. No, he won't. Yes, he will. You know. <laughs> um, and of course, Job does not. 
he maintains his integrity. Now his wife said, curse God and die, you know, <laughs> but, but she was speaking foolishly as he pointed out, um, you know, but in the end, Job is never told why he suffered, as you pointed out earlier. In fact, when he finally does have that face-to-face conversation with God, God basically says, where were you when I did this and I did this and I did this and I created these creatures and I did this to the world. Where were you when I did all that? And Job's like, <laughs> you know, and he falls on his face in sackcloth and ashes and said, I, I repent. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinful man. And, um, and he just falls in worship before this glorious God. He never gives Job an answer. You know, now of course God does restore Job's fortunes and, and so forth, but what is going on there? Um, for the believer, there's something very powerful about suffering that we can learn. And, you know, we know from, for example, Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. That's the believer, right? So it's not just some things, you know, it's not just, you know, I'm going to use this good stuff to do good blessings in your life, but this bad stuff, yeah, well, I don't know what to do about that. You know, you're just going to have to deal with that on your own because I, as your God, I can't help you there. That, that, that is just not something that God does to his children. So we have to understand that God is doing something with our suffering. And I think one of the most powerful passages, and I, and I wish now I had probably spent more time unfolding the riches of this passage, but it's, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 through uh, 18. And, and there Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, right? He's immediately referencing the curse. You know, our outer man is decaying as believers. We're not free from the curse, from the pain of the curse, from, from our bodies wearing down as we get older and older, you know, we get more feeble and we have more aches and pains and eventually we're going to die. Right. So even the Christian is not immune from the curse that our outer man is, is in this process of decaying and degenerating and getting worse and worse. So he says that, and then he says, but yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So he's making a distinction between our outer man and our souls that are being renewed because we have been redeemed. We've been justified. And then he makes this amazing statement of verse 17 for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I preached on this, this, this passage a number of weeks ago. And one of the things that I tried to point out to people is that suffering affliction is the main subject here. Uh, The main verb in this verse is the word producing. And then the object is glory. So if you want to just, you know, you know, bring verse 17 down to his basic elements. Basically Paul is saying affliction produce is producing glory for you. Okay. So what does that mean? It it tells us that 
Affliction is not just inert. It's not just some passive thing that just happens to us as believers. No, what Paul is saying is that God has actually purposed your affliction to do something. It's doing something for you. It is producing something. It is not passive. It is active. And what is it doing? What is it producing? It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Hmm. So, I may not be able to answer for you what God may be doing with some affliction that he brings into your life in terms of the temporary uh, effects of that for you, right? You may lose a child in childbirth. I I just was talking to one of the elders in our church whose daughter just lost a, a, a baby, a miscarriage yesterday. Uh, you know, devastating uh, for that family. You know, what is God doing in that? I I don't know specifically what God might be doing in the temporal realm with regard to that particular thing. There could be many things that he's doing that will bring blessing to that person in this realm, to that Christian in in this present life. Um, Maybe, maybe not. Job, you know, God didn't have to restore all of Job's fortunes. He could have left Job a destitute man to the end of his life. Would that have been bad on God's part? No. Because what God ultimately was doing with Job had nothing to do with restoring his fortunes in this present life. But it had to do with the eternal glory that was awaiting him for all eternity. And so we get our perspective skewed because we think that, that God's got to resolve all of the problems of evil in our personal lives now, here and now. But he doesn't make us that promise. What he does promise us is that all of the affliction that we're experiencing in this life now is producing an eternal weight of glory such that when we come face to face before a Redeemer in glory, in our resurrection bodies, we will experience a glory that we could have never had, uh, could have never experienced or ever enjoyed or ever appreciated unless we had gone through the afflictions and the pain and the misery of the curse of this life in such a way that we can appreciate the glory and the grace and the redemption that Christ brought about for us in eternity that that just cannot be compared to anything he might be, be doing for us in this present age. Mm. And, and so, yes, he does do amazing things in this present age, but he's by no means obligated to resolve every last problem of evil or affliction or trials or tribulations, you know, pain and suffering that we might experience in this age. Yes, it builds our faith uh, for sure. It, it, you know, Peter tells us that, that, you know, that suffering is like the fires of a furnace that forge and purify our faith. Yes, he does that in everything. That's at the very least. But what this passage in 2 Corinthians is telling us is that God is doing something way beyond that. He is using this affliction to, to create a, a set of conditions for the future such that we will be immersed in a glory that is unfathomable. And all of our affliction in this present life is producing this future glory 
And, and it is, it's overwhelming if you sit and meditate and think about what this passage is really saying. And so uh, I may not be able to answer why God does any specific and what he is doing in any specific instance of evil or affliction in the life of the believer uh, in this life. But I do know what he's doing for future, you know, for the life of the, of the believer in the future. And let me tell you, it is mind blowing (laughs) and it will bring such glory to God and bring such deep rooted satisfaction and joy to our souls that, that we have no idea how amazing that glory is going to be all because of the affliction that we're going through in the present. Wow. That's what I was saying. Believers. (laughs) Great, great. And and I know we have to let you go here, but uh, you know, and it just struck me when you were uh, giving that explanation that it's almost a tiny mirror of God's overall story, right? Christ suffered affliction to bring glory to God, Mm. right? And so it's it's the same thing, only we have it in a little miniature way, right? Our sufferings of affliction will bring glory, right? Not not only to God, but to us, as you point out. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, Yeah. amazing. Yeah, I think that's what Paul means when he says, "I share in the afflictions of Christ." You Mm -hmm. know, and and Mm -hmm. even in in is it Hebrews where it says that for the joy set before him. Christ endured the cross. Well, what was that joy set before him? It was the redemption of his people, you know, and, and the joy that that brought him that compelled him to immerse himself into this darkness that was the cross and the wrath of God that he bore uh, the weight of upon his, his suffering body uh, and the cry of dereliction that, that is just unfathomable to us to think of what was going on between the father and the son it, it, when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet all of that, he bore joyfully knowing the glory and, and the redemptive glory that that would, you know, create for his people. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's the greater glory theodicy. Yeah. Uh, right. And I would say, be careful of reading uh, this book around your kids, because I think uh, uh, my six-year-old was uh, just, uh, you know, doing what six-year-olds do, playing, and, and you know, uh, my wife was working, and she just, you know, absentmindedly said, you know, uh, why, why do you think uh, God allowed uh, uh, the, the, the illness that shall not be named uh, to, uh, to come into this world? And, you know, my wife just, you know, was concentrating on something. She goes, I don't know, kiddo. And she paused for a second and goes, uh, the six-year-old goes, um, probably to, to bring people to God. Right. And I'm like, did, did my six year old just Romans nine us? I was like, I, I don't know if that's, you know, yeah. the, the light of Christ in her, uh, uh, Lord willing, or if I've been talking way too much about your book, but I would just say, be careful where, where you put, uh, Scott Christian's book, uh, uh, <laughs> at in your house. <laughs> So what about this this uh, this issue of uh, I noticed you have a question about uh, a trilogy maybe or something? Yeah. Like that. So um, so 
you, you've titled your books The Whatabouts. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, purely coincidental or providential. Sorry, not coincidental. <laughs> um, uh, so what about free will? What about evil? Um, and your your what about evil is, is going to uh, be a uh, more reader-friendly uh, uh, version called Light Shining Out of Darkness, How God is Glorified in a World Full of Evil. I don't want to put too much on your plate. <laughs> Will there be a third what about? <laughs> well, if my publisher has their way, yeah, there'll be a perpetual, uh, you know, perpetual books from here on out. But yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. But no, I, I am contracted to write a, a condensed, more reader friendly version of, as you point, you showed that book in the beginning. It's, it's 500 plus pages. And it's some pretty dense at points, you know, uh, as you guys know. Uh, so I'm I'm going to write a a probably a, a 150 to 170 page book that's going to be basically the same argument, a little bit more practical, uh, definitely more reader friendly, more palatable for for the average person who may be intimidated. Uh, by reading the big thick book, um, it won't replace the big book by any means, Definitely. but it will introduce the argument to a, a, in a more reader friendly, uh, condensed fashion. So that's, that's what's next on my plate. Beyond that, I have a few ideas, but I uh, don't want to commit myself. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good, yeah. Your publisher might hear you and hold you to it. Huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. My publisher hears that, they'll, yeah, they'll be on my tail. And, and considering we've, we've been talking about uh, the, 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 the uh, compatibilism, we, we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, go towards tomorrow. We want to be focused on today. So <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, as Kyle Christensen, we greatly appreciate you coming on our show being the first person to come back on our show. So that uh, we thank you for writing this book. Uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was applicable. Uh, um, you, you talk about it uh, uh, being long. Uh, I, I, I would have liked it to be longer because I've, I've got so much uh, joy of reading it. And so um, they, they can, they can uh, pick up your uh, condensed uh, version in the future. They can come watch our show as they then pick up the, the, the new book and, and sure. we can help walk them through and, and they can just get put it on repeat. So it helps us with the uh, viewership. <laughs> there <laughs> so uh th again th thanks for coming on thanks for uh um carving uh some time out to, to talk to us and uh, uh allowing us to thank you for for your work yes thanks for having me on it's been it's been my pleasure all right all right folks um uh next week we'll probably do a just a uh, uh intro to our next uh book that we're going to be doing and uh, uh give you a, a week or two to um to, to pick that up uh so Join us next time, and always uh, we'll cut this uh, episode up into short parts. So if you're wanting to find out exactly what to say to Christians when something bad happens, uh, then uh, th that, uh, that clip I'm sure will, will be uh, in this coming week. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.